and thank you for tuning in to the Occlusal Table. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor Jackson. And it's your girl, Jasmine Clyde. And today we have the pleasure of having dentists on our panel to discuss their experiences, their journey to their specialty, and taking a deeper look into residency. Let's get started. Dr. Laurel Burns is from Nashville, Tennessee, where she attended Martin Luther King Magnet High School for Health Sciences and Engineering. She completed her undergraduate studies at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She is a graduate of New York University College of Dentistry and returned to Penn to pursue her special specialty training in endodontics, receiving her certificate in 2017. Dr. Burns additionally has a master's degree in clinical investigation from NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Burns is a diplomat of the American Board of Endodontists, a full-time assistant professor at NYU College of Dentistry, and maintains part-time private practice. She is recently engaged and planning a wedding back home in Nashville. All right, excellent. And next we have Dr. George Brown, who is a native of Lexington, Kentucky. He completed undergraduate studies and dental school at the University of Kentucky as well. He received his master's degree and certificate in endodontics from Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio. Since then, he has been practicing dentistry for 27 years and currently has a private practice in the metro Atlanta area. His wife is a restorative dentist and he has two sons. One is a junior at Georgia Tech, majoring in computer science, and the other a third-year dental student at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. Let's give it up for our guests. <laughs> yes, we are so thankful to have you on, all on today. And I, the first question I want to ask is, when did you all choose to pursue endodontics and why? And I guess give a little brief overview of what endodontics is. And I guess we can start with Dr. Burns. Okay, great. Um, so I will say that endodontics is the specialty of dentistry that's concerned with preserving the natural dentition. Um, we are specialists in the diagnosis of pulpal conditions and their treatment. Um, through root canal therapy and root canal associated surgeries. And so I decided to pursue endodontics very early. Um, in my first year of dental school, I made the decision to start exploring endodontics. Um, as a kid, I had dental trauma, um, trampoline accident. So I knew what endodontics was firsthand going into dental school, but did not enter dental school with the plan of becoming an endodontist. And um, I think the most relevant reason that I chose endodontics for these times is that I entered dental school um, during the Great Recession. And, um, you know, the econo economic situation was very apparent in my mind. And I really felt like I didn't want to be in a position for my personality type and with current economic conditions where I felt like I was selling dentistry um, to the general public. And endodontic kind of caught my endodontics kind of caught my eye because you know you need it or you don't. There's no selling involved. It's an essential treatment. It's very foundational. Um, and so that's when I started exploring the specialty more through shadowing and research. All right, good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I had a very unusual uh, journey in getting into endodontics. I. Uh, I finished dental school and went directly into private practice. I had an offer from the chairman of the Department of Periodontics to think about becoming a resident in his uh, program. 
But uh, my issue was that I just didn't feel like I had a, a good knowledge base on what I wanted to do with the rest of my career. So I really felt like I needed to get into a general practice and jumped right into private practice with another practitioner and found my way, you know, wanted to figure out what I liked, what I didn't like. Uh, I did it all as a general dentist. I did orthodontics, uh, took out partial bony wisdom teeth, uh, removable cross. I love dentures and RPD. So I felt that I did the whole gamut of everything I could as a general dentist. But when Dr. Burns was talking about personality, it did not fit me at all. Uh, I felt like I was sometimes jack of all trades and master of none. Uh, I loved the variety of doing all those things, but I wanted to focus on one thing and do it very, very well. And when I asked myself, what is it that I could see myself doing? What would I enjoy doing all day, every day? The bottom line was I really enjoyed doing the endodontics in my practice. Uh, so that's what uh, started the fire. And I had a passion for that. And that's how I got into it. So I didn't get into endodontics until uh, nine years. I spent nine years as a general dentist doing restorative practice. The last five years was with my wife. So uh, we had a practice together. So when I came home and said, hey, I think I want to apply to endo, it's like, well, what are we going to do with this practice? We, we practice together. So uh, that was a huge leap of faith when I went back to school because we sold our practice, moved our family, our two young boys to Cleveland, and started my residency the program in Cleveland. That's wonderful. I think um, having a foundational in uh, general practice also can help. Um, I know a lot of people are thinking about that first doing a general practice and then moving on to a specialty. So that's great. And we would love to hear about um, what, what, what was residency like? What was your first day like? We would, like, we would just love to know what your, you all's experience was during residency. I, I had the time of my life in residency. I really loved it. Uh, I thought it was hard. I thought it was difficult. Uh, we, we received our master's while we were getting our certificates. So we had classes to get through. So classes usually started at 7 a.m. Uh, and then from seven, we, we had clinic time that started at nine, ran usually right to lunchtime. Then we had our endo courses that we would have in between then uh, during lunch. Usually you had lunch during class time. Uh, then we have more patients in the afternoon and then your evenings was all about studying and projects and whatever you had to do. And it seems like the next morning you woke up and started it all over again. Uh, so it was very demanding, but it was a good feeling because you were totally immersed in what it was that you were planning to do for the rest of your life. So uh, after nine years of private practice, I felt like I knew how to do a root canal. But I, I love the idea of now understanding the why behind the things that I was doing mechanically. Uh, so I thought that was real important to, to not, not so much, you wanted to become better mechanically, you wanted to be, to be able to do a better endodontic, uh, have a better endodontic product at the end, but more so when you understood the why, that really changed what you did mechanically to make a, a better outcome for your patients. So a uh, very demanding time, but uh, you know, we had four residents. I loved them all to death. We all worked together. Uh, we're still best of friends to this day. Uh, I've met people that, that I still uh, love to, to, the, to the utmost degree, just be for the bonds that we made during our residency program. 
Okay. Yeah. I, I agree with Dr. Brown. I mean, residency was tough. Um, it was intense. I came with the mindset. I was like, okay, Laurel, like this is a time to really buckle down. Um, this is where you're going to learn to do what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So it's time to get serious and take in all that you can. Um, and so for me, I was moving from New York City back to Philadelphia. Um, and I really took it as a time to refocus. Um, coming out of dental school, I was the youngest person in my class. And most, a lot of us were straight out of dental school in my class, though. So it was a good um, cohort. But um, the learning curve was really steep. I mean, you come out of dental school, maybe you've done five root canals, and, you know, now you've got to get up to speed didactically and clinically. And I will say that it was very, very tough um, for the first semester, and then kind of tough through the first year. And then I felt like after the first full year, everybody kind of leveled out, and we're more on the same playing field, and we really were starting to feel comfortable and pick up our speed and, you know, just get repetition under our belts. Um, but to Dr. Brown's point, learning about the why of endodontic treatment was the most rewarding part. Just learning the literature, learning to cite all the names, all the greats, all the, the founding fathers of our specialty, um, it increased my confidence clinically, understanding um, the biologic basis behind what I was doing and how I could um, induce healing in that way. Um, and so I had a residency class um, of eight co-residents, which was um, a larger program, um, but it, it was great. Um, we still have a, you know, a WhatsApp thread where we discuss cases and, you know, reach out to each other. And, you know, our program was global. It was an opportunity for me to meet people from around the world. Um, one of my best friends from residency lives in Taiwan. I've gone there to visit him. And so it was just another opportunity um, beyond dental school to meet more amazing people. And it was, it was great. Can I add to that as well? Uh, I, I really want to hit the points that she was saying because we were very different that I enjoyed the clinical part of my program, the didactic part being out for, for 10 years, you know, almost that was the harder part for me, you know, in, in becoming a student again. Uh, I enjoyed the clinical time because it was a piece of cake to me. I only had one patient, you know, and, and all I had to do was one root canal. That was great. And I had three or four hours to get it done. I thought that was fabulous because coming out of private practice, I was used to seeing a patient every 30, 45 minutes. So the speed part was already there. But like you said, getting back into knowing the literature, uh, understanding the whys, the projects that we had to do, you know, all of those things was the more challenging part to me. Uh, the other part about residency was that it just was not about teeth. I think she hit on a very important fact there. Uh, there were four residents and uh, I was, uh, all of us in our program, we all had at least 10 years of practice, all four of us did. So uh, it, we, we had such a diverse uh, diversity among us. We had one guy that was of Mexican descent and he was working on an, uh, in the Indian health uh, program. So he was on a reservation. Uh, we had another guy who had served in the Israeli army. Uh, he was a Jewish guy. Uh, then we had an Indian guy who had worked in Dubai and you had me. And all of us came from different backgrounds. We were very different culturally. Uh, we were different from our religious standpoints. But the time we spent together outside class, I felt my education in the world 
was was really growing as much as my endodontic education. Uh, getting to know how they lived, what things were important to them, you know, that uh, the background, that, that was really key to me because coming from Lexington, Kentucky, a small area, I had never been around people with, with that type of diversity and that type of background. So I think it's important that we learn from each other. It was a lot. It was it, I guess it was learning about life being in that environment. And that's great. And it's funny how at the end of the day, we all have the same core values of family and what's important to us. So even though we had all those differences, we all came together for a common goal. Absolutely. Um, and even mentioning the point, like, you know, you're going to class from 7 a.m. until the end of the day and everything. I'm over here thinking that going to class every day at 8 a.m. is a lot, but 7 a.m., wow. <laughs> that is early. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I wake up, you know, at like 4.30 a.m. anyway just to uh, work out and everything, but who to start class at 7 a.m., that, that's a different story. Um, <laughs> so then that also shows the love you've got to have with your residents. You're oh, absolutely. You're seeing people all day, every day. Uh, so it, it's important that you get along. And then after class, we would all get together at each other's house. Everybody knew everybody's wife. You know, my wife is making dinner. So y'all come over and we'll study together tonight. So it wasn't just during the day that you were together, but we were together, you know, at nights as well. And uh, oftentimes on weekends. Weekends wasn't time to sleep in. A lot of times weekends was time to get caught up. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was important that you use your time wisely and that you had good people around you to help you get things done. And um, not only were weekends, for me at least, a time to get caught up, it was also a time to work. Um, in my second year, um, I moonlighted um, in an endodontic office where I covered their emergencies. Um, and so, you know, residency is really just a time to push yourself in all aspects. Um, I mean, in addition to the fact that most endodontic programs are tuition-based, uh, I needed money, but also I wanted to say, okay, I need to get, you know, the feel of what private practice is going to look like, and I could start that um, during my residency program. Absolutely. And for our listeners that do not know what moonlighting is, can you expound upon that, Dr. Burns? Yeah, so moonlighting is when you are a licensed dentist, so you are practicing legally, um, but you are kind of, moonlighting means you're working at nights or on the weekends, um, doing something a little bit extra. Um, you could moonlight as a general dentist or as an endodontic resident, you could moonlight only doing endodontic procedures. So um, that's what it is. Absolutely. So then even during res residency and talking about that experience. Um, what about post-residency uh, as far as like business is concerned? Would you suggest going into a DSO? Um, Dr. Brown talked about his experience of going into private practice, um, being a general dentist, or what about associateships? Uh, what would you recommend uh, post-residency? Or even after graduating as a um, dental student? Well, I'll let Dr. Brown mostly answer this question. So um, after residency, I entered full-time academia, where so I'm a full-time um, assistant professor. But one of the really cool things about working at NYU is that they allow you to um, maintain private practice. So when you're full-time faculty, a lot of the schools that you'll work at will say, okay, you can practice, but only in our faculty practice. 
So NYU lets you practice on the outside. So I get a little bit more of the real world experience, which was really important for me um, as someone who was just graduating and then entering academia. And my first year um, of working in private practice, I actually commuted weekly from Nash from New York to Nashville, um, where I was an associate. Um, and the practice, it was an endodontic office, but it was kind of modeled like a, a DSO. Um, and I did that for a year. I was commuting back and forth every week. Um, and then I realized that the travel was just obviously not going to be um, something that I could maintain. And I joined an endodontic practice here in New York where I'm an associate. Um, I think that it's great to be, you know, an associate um, to start off in an endodontic office, but I definitely know people who went straight into ownership. And now also, I see a lot of my residents considering DSOs um, because a lot of them with like a three to five year commitment are offering some, um, some loan repayment and offering um, other other perks like cars um, or um, no interest loans on buying supplies. So, you know, there are ups and downs for each option, I would say. But Dr. Brown, please. Dr. Burns, I was looking for you to answer that because I'm the old man in the room. So I came from a different time frame. Uh, I guess my vision in, in getting into dentistry everything was the, the sole proprietor. You know, when I looked around, every dentist I knew had their, 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 their single office and they were there and they practiced and that's how it worked. That was the model that I saw. So going into dental school, I knew private practice is what I was looking for. That was my ultimate goal. That's where I wanted to be. Uh, times were really different then. And uh, I thought you would help me with this because when I came out, I didn't have to deal with all the student loan debt. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say when I came out of school, I mean, I have very little debt to pay back. Uh, so going right into practice really wasn't an issue. It's just something that I knew that I was going to do. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that I did, you know, after my uh, residency, I, I had that in my background. So I knew how to operate a practice. I knew I had the business mindset. I had the speed. So I knew, you know, as soon as I was done with my program, I was going to open another office. Uh, twice in my career, I've hung a shingle uh, that I've, been, well, Taylor, I know you're talking about <laughs> sometimes we don't understand some of these things, but meaning I just came out and started a practice from scratch. You know, so uh, my wife and I, we started a practice from scratch, just the two of us. And at that time, it was literally just the two of us. One day I'd answer the phone and she'd see patients and we would swap the next day. So that's that's how we started. Uh, so times are different. So when you're asking me now, what should students do? Uh, that's that's different for me, knowing that the debt that you have to come out with and the things that you the financial responsibilities that you already have. Uh, I think there is no great path or, or ultimately the, the right answer. I think you've got to choose and know in your mind what it is that you want out of life to make these decisions. You know, do I want to be in academia? You know, do I, do I want to be in a multidisciplinary practice where we have an oral surgeon, a periodontist and an endodontist all working together? Do I want to hang a shingle and just be, you know, a sole proprietor? You, you kind of have to feel your way into what you want to do. And then I think you can use a DSO. I can use the military. You know, I can use academics to get me to where it is I want to be. 
So I don't think that you have to be of the mindset that if I want to be be a sole proprietor of a practice and practice solo, that that's the way I have to start my career. Uh, I think there's that's the beauty of what's out there today is that I can do DSO for a while and help. I can use the military to help me pay back some loans and eventually get to where I want to be. But uh, I, I hate to see people kind of come out and get stuck into things. Oftentimes, I think with the debt, sometimes you get into the DSO and you're kind of stuck there. So I think you have to kind of come out with a mindset that this is who I am. This is the lifestyle that I want. This is ultimately where I want to be. And you have to have that as your goal, as your goal and keep working toward that. And you might use a combination of all these things. I love that Dr. Burns is, is doing full time academics. And at the same time, she's practicing a little bit on the side, too. I love the variety that endodontics and dentistry in general brings to a person's life. So there's so many different ways that you can do this. I have another friend and they're, they're two female dentists and it was important for them to be moms. So they have a practice together and one of them works one week and the other week she's at home as a mom and they, they switch off like that. So what a beautiful thing to do. But when you're asking about paths, I don't think there's a wrong way to get there as long as you you keep hope alive and you know you keep your, your desires in your heart and you just keep working toward them that there's really no wrong way. Absolutely. And I think um, exactly what Dr. Brown was saying. We're, well, we are a little jealous that, you know, you came out with no debt because now dental students, it's an astronomical amount of debt. I think right. the average, right, Taylor, is about maybe a half a million dollars sure per dental student. That's a lot I mean, of money. I will be candid. I know, Dr. Brown, you're looking for me to say, you know, more about the debt. I came out of dental school and residency. I have over $750,000 in debt, all dental. I had no debt from my undergraduate experience. Um, and I had some scholarship money for dental school as well. But, you know, paying for dental school, living expenses, residency, living expenses, and then the interest all throughout that, um, that's what I'm looking at. I'll say, like, last year I paid $40,000 towards my loans, all of it interest, nothing on principal. So it's tough, and it's tough to talk to people and act like that elephant in the room doesn't exist. But... Um, I really try to take the mindset of not letting it cripple me. You know, it's something that it was a decision that we made to pursue this profession. You know, we were aware of the debt. And so, you know, I'm just going to continue to work to pursue my goals. And as Dr. Brown said, it may not be a straight shot to, you know, practice ownership. And you may need to, you know, um, use a lot of the tools available to you to get where you want to be. But as long as you know where you ultimately want to be, um, you know, the debt doesn't define you and it really doesn't have to define your journey, I would say. Great. I, I, I feel bad. Uh, I am going to share it because it's important because I don't want you to think, you know, I came out with no debt. But you got to realize, like I said, I came out in 1993. So that was 27 years ago. And uh, I felt awful because I came out with $20,000 worth of student loan debt. So when you compare wow. that to where you're talking today, you know, that's that was a lot different, you know, but at that time I thought, Oh my God, I go $20,000. You know, that was, that was horrible. But, uh, that, that's what allowed me to take the path that I took. Okay. So be, because I didn't have that. So I wouldn't look at somebody or down on a young student today and think, Hey, why aren't you opening your own practice doing your own thing? Well, I came from a different time, a different era, and I had different circumstances. So, uh, 
that's why I say as long as you you search yourself, you search your heart and get to where you want to be, that's 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 the important thing. It's, it's all about the journey. And I think there's important things that you can learn from a DSO. I think there's important things that you can learn. My first job in dentistry was with an office that was heavy PPO and uh, was heavy Medicaid. So, you know, that that was that was one of the reasons I was so adept at, at, at surgery. Uh, you know, there were days or weeks, there would be certain days where I wouldn't pick up a handpiece that all we were doing were taking out teeth sometimes. But uh, that was in little did I know that was preparing me for maybe becoming very skilled at doing endodontic surgery because elevating flaps and, you know, to take out teeth was the same flap that I had to make in doing an apicoectomy. So all of these things you may think are negatives, really, you know, I hate to go Christian on y'all, but all things work together for your good. They, they really do. So you, you may not know and may not see how this is going to wind up in the end, but uh, I think if you just keep chugging along and not, like you said, not let the debt cripple you, not let your circumstances cripple you, but if you just keep giving the effort and keep moving forward, uh, I think in the end, it'll all be for reward. One thing I, I wanted to add, Taylor, that we was talking about, and I think everybody sees that private practice is the way to go and, and that's the ultimate goal. But I, I want you to know that that doesn't fit everybody's personality. So know that you really must decide what you want to do in life. And, and, and it takes some sacrifices to have private practice. And I don't think it's for everyone. Uh, my wife and I both have private practices and the most part of yesterday on Saturday is the weekend and we want to sit back and relax, but we worked on taxes. We worked on retirement plans. We, you know, this is Saturday afternoon. I, I want to go out and hold my wife's hands and go for walks, but we're, we're looking at things that we must take care of uh, within our practices to, to take care of ourselves financially. Uh, I think if that's something you don't want to do, you know, DSO is, 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 is something that may be great for some people because they don't want to have to make those sacrifices. I'm out hustling all the time for, to get new patients. So I've got to be marketing my practice. I've got to be marketing myself. If that's not something you're good at and something that you don't want to do, maybe the military is a great option for you to, to be an endodontist in the military. So there, you really need to do some soul searching before you, you, you lay down some final roots. I think you need to see what you're comfortable with, what you're good with. And uh, there's so many opportunities that once you find out where you're a good fit, that you can go and have a very successful career. But just know that I don't think private practice is the end all and the epitome, and it is not for everyone. There's a lot that you have to give up to be in private practice. So uh, that's important that, that you feel your way, you find your way, you try some things before you make a final decision. I think that's real important. And that's a great point, um, Dr. Brown and Dr. Burns, what she was saying before, um, you shouldn't feel crippled over the astronomical amount of debt. We chose to be in this profession. And I've heard from two, uh, one, my mentor from home, um, he, he said, it, you know what, it's just a bill a month and it is what it is. You're just going to have to to pay it. There's no way out of it. And then someone here at Meharry also said the same thing. Listen, it's just, it's a bill a month and you'll get through it. It'll, the 
number will dwindle down eventually. So we're here for a reason. And we chose this profession because we love dentistry. We all love dentistry on this call. So what would, what would the advice um, you would give to students like us, Taylor and I, who are going to come out with this debt? Is there any financial advice or business advice? Is there a plan that we should follow following dental school? Can, can I go back to that before we, we move into the next topic? Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. And that I, I don't want to feel like we're complaining about our profession. It's interesting to me, there's always the link between medicine and dentistry that just uh, at the beginning of this semester, I had a young student that shadowed in my office and he started dental school and both of his parents are, are physicians. And both of his parents pushed him to go into dentistry. So I'm finding that's happening more and more often that sometimes we complain about the debt, sometimes we complain about our profession, but I'm finding that more and more students are more interested in taking the dental path than they are in taking the medicine. Uh, And I don't know what that's about, and and I don't want to complain about our profession because I love it. It's great that that wasn't something I wanted to get into. um, I think this it's a diamond in the rough. It, it's really a jewel. I, I enjoy what we do. I love the variety of it. And I think other people and other professions, I hear that from my physician friends all the time. Oh, Lord, if I could do it over again, I'd be an orthodontist. They all, they all tell me that all the time. I'd love to be an orthodontist. I always wanted to do that. My uncle was an orthodontist, and I wish that was the path that I had taken. So, uh, you know, we can complain about the debt and some things, but a lot of people are envious of, of the life and the lifestyle that we have. So uh, we may complain some, you know, but uh, really, I, I think we have we we've made some excellent choices. So then with that being said, um, what advice would you give Taylor and I, you know, coming out with this debt? Is there a certain plan that we should follow um, or we should just I mean, not brush it off, but um, we'll just work towards um, resolving our debt. Um, Well, I'll say that um, the best thing that I did when I finished my residency was I immediately got um, a financial advisor and an accountant. And I interviewed quite a few financial advisors and was looking for someone who had experience working with young dentists um, that understood, you know, the the student loans um, and the repayment options. And then separately, I have an accountant who does not know my financial planner, except for maybe when they talk briefly once a year. Um, And that has been key for me because it really set me up on a savings and investment plan, really understanding my money management, um, my money flow, you know, after being in school so long where you're just like, okay, this is monopoly money. It feels like sometimes now you have real money and real debt that's entering repayment. And that was great for me. Um, And then I'll say the accountant piece was really important for me because I have a lot of dentist friends that are about my age that many of them owe the IRS, right? Because, you know, they're independent contractors. They put some money aside knowing that they've got to pay these taxes. But then that bill comes, it's tax time, and it's way more than they ever expected. And so many friends of mine are paying back the IRS. And so getting a good accountant on the front end for me um, was really important um, in understanding what my tax burden would be and what I need to set it aside so that I wouldn't be owing um, more than I expected. 
I think she said exactly the advice that I was going to give as well and, and, and said it in a different way. Uh, I think it's important that if you wanted to have money, the first thing you got to understand is that you got to spend the money. So oftentimes you'll say that that's money I don't have, but you have to spend it anyway. So a lot of people don't get an accountant. They don't get a financial planner because why should I pay somebody else for that advice? I can do it myself. But it's money well spent. If you spend the money and, and surround yourself with the right people, that will come back to you. Other things I think that you've got to spend money on is, uh, is, is spend the money on your education. Don't think that the end of your education is after you've graduated. You've got to surround yourself with good CE. You know, uh, you've got to always keep the, the, the iron sharp. So you've got to go to the right courses. You've got to surround yourself with the right people. You do have to have good professionals around you to kind of help along the way. Uh, being in private practice was even tougher for me because uh, I, I'm trying to work up to a certain level, but I do have to start spending money on certain things that was important. And some of the important things that we had to spend on that I had to learn was I had to spend money on staff. Uh, that's key if you're starting a practice that you've got to have the right people answering the telephones. You have to have the right people assisting you. And I don't think you want to go get the minimum wage, somebody that, that you know, is going to have a lot of problems and issues that is just going to make your life uh, put it in more turmoil. So you have to spend the extra money and surrounding yourself with the right staff. I had to learn to spend money on marketing. You know, like I said, twice in my career, I, hang, I hung a shingle. So you have to put money into, you know, am I going to do some direct marketing? You know, what internal marketing am I going to do? One of the things with my practice, I, uh, I used to dread. I had courtside seats to the Atlanta Hawks games. And that used to cost me such a pretty penny. And I just would dread sometimes, but I'd enjoyed the basketball. And I would give those tickets to, to referring doctors. And they would love it. And, you know, the return on the investment and what I was spending at the Hawks games paled in comparison to what I was getting back in return. So learning to let go of the dollars, you'll see that, that they'll come back to you. So uh, we can't be so tight fist. And that's one of the problems we have. We want to take everything that we have. We want to take it home. We want to have the nice car and the nice home. But oftentimes you got to reinvest in yourself. you got to reinvest in your practice. And when you reinvest into those things, I think that you will see a, a exponential return on the dollars that you that you make. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then even, uh, you know, going deeper into endodontics, uh, there's a lot of different misconceptions out there uh, surrounding root canal therapy. Um, what are some myths uh, that can be debunked with regards to endodontics. I'm not going to name that uh, the uh, Netflix documentary that shall not be named. <laughs> okay, can you hear? I got, I got, I'll take this one first. Uh, and she knows the literature, so she's going to help me out on, on some things. I think a couple of problems that I see in, in, in endodontics is, is the biggest problem. I hear people all the time say, why do a root canal? Because they don't work. And uh, that happens quite often with patients that have had bad experiences in the past. Uh, honestly, root canals don't work. Usually I find for about three different reasons. Number one is diagnosis. Uh, you've got to be very skilled in figuring out why this tooth is before you. 
I could do a root canal all day long, but if there is a fracture running through this tooth, it is going to fail. Uh, if the tooth is non-restorable, if there's you know very little of it left, eventually I know that tooth's going to fail. If the tooth is periodontally involved, there's no need in me doing root canals on teeth that are already compromised in such a way that I know the long-term prognosis is going to be very poor. So that's one of the problems that I see. That's probably one of the biggest problems I see in endodontics is that a lot of times in the past, endodontics have been done on teeth that already have poor prognosis. And then once that fails, the, the patient now has a mindset that root canals just don't work. Uh, so diagnosis is the first thing that's, that's important. Second thing that's important why root canals fail is restoration. Is the restoring of the tooth that, that's key. Uh, I can do wonderful endodontics, but if the patient never puts a crown, you'd be surprised on how many times I've done a root canal and they come back with cotton in the tooth or cavit temporaries and other things that they've never done anything beyond that. You know, they came in pain, you got them out of pain, problem fixed. And even though we tell them over and over again, hey, you've got to restore this tooth, you've got to seal this tooth, that's what's going to give you a good long-term final result. It just doesn't always happen. So oftentimes it falls on the patient himself. But finally, we, we do, the last point is that we must be very uh, proficient in what we're doing. Uh, root canals, when you have three roots and you've only treated two of them, that's going to be a problem. Uh, so you, you've got to have the technology behind you that, that makes you well. You, you've got to invest in CBCT sometimes. You uh, I, I use Gentle Wave in my office. So, you know, I, I've got all the tools and things that I think are necessary that's going to help me do my part. And then the patient has to do their part and the restorative dentist does their part. And if all of us work together, root canals don't fail. OK, so that that's the biggest problem I have. Uh, the other problems I have is do they hurt? You know, patients, I'm not going to do a root canal because it's going to hurt. And I think most programs, we're well-trained that, that we can do root canals in a very quick manner. Uh, we can do it in, in a very pain-free manner in, in most times. So there are some extreme examples. And oftentimes, I'm telling patients how you leave my office has a lot to do with how you come in. So, uh, you know, some of that falls on the patient as well. But we're, we're all trained that we can handle the pain part. Uh, the last thing is, is just myths and endodontics in general that people don't understand. So I really go through with my patients what I'm doing when I'm doing endodontics. Uh, everybody always asks me that same question. Doctor, how is the tooth going to stay in my mouth if you're taking out the root? And they don't understand that we're working in the canal space within the root. Everybody thinks we're actually cutting out and they think all root canals are surgical procedures, you know. Doc, I can't believe I didn't even bleed. You cut out the whole root. No, that's that's not. So I, I really take a lot of time in educating my patients so that they understand. Because if I can educate this patient and they tell the next patient the correct things, because a lot of people come in getting wrong information from their friend and their other buddies, and they just have a poor understanding of exactly what root canals are. Uh, and you're right, you, you talked about Netflix a little bit and, and being in this field as long as I have, it's a cycle that about every five to seven years, we're gonna have this focal infection theory and the holistic, you, you'd be surprised on how many holistic root canals I have to fix. And it just kind of seems to come in groves like that, that, that people have this thought that 
if root canals cause certain things and certain ailments, and we have to debunk that theory all the time and all the science and the literature behind it. But it's just something that, that's going to come up from time to time, and it it creeps up and causes a lot of noise, and, and we have to push back against it some. And Dr. Burns can tell us a lot more about the, the, the literature and the things behind that, but those are some of the things that we see floating around. I think I have a lot less problems with the focal infection theory and all that. I have bigger problems with, like you're saying, is it going to hurt? Do they work? Those types of things. And if we can get the right information out about that, I think it makes the field a lot better. Yes, I, I agree with Dr. Brown and all of his points. Um, I would say that I am in agreement that the biggest misconception is that um, endodontic treatment or root canal therapy does not work. Um, I'm oftentimes wondering how many cases don't I see, right? How many cases just went straight to extraction um, because, you know, the restorative or general dentist felt like endodontic treatment wasn't even worth the effort because they don't understand what I believe is the goal of endodontic treatment, which is to extend the lifespan of the natural dentition. And I think when you put it in that mental framework, um, you have a greater appreciation for endodontic treatment. Um, you know, when you're diagnosing, as Dr. Brown mentioned, you have to think about, you know, the long-term prognosis of the tooth as it relates to its restorative and periodontal condition. But, you know, sometimes not everything is perfect. And even in those cases, you may opt to attempt root canal therapy in an effort to expand the life of this tooth. You know, I'll have, you know, 25-year-old patients, 30-year-old patients, they'll say, okay, this seems like a production. Can I just take it out and get an implant? And, I, and I'll say to them, and especially with my younger patients, I'm like, okay, well, you know, the mouth is a hostile environment. You know, if you get 10 years out of a dental treatment, that kudos to that treatment. Like, that is a good service right? And you can expect that a filling will need to be replaced in 10 years, a crown will need to be replaced in 10 years, maybe your endodontic treatment will need to be redone in 10 years. I mean, there's the mouth is just full of bacteria, you can't expect things to last your entire lifetime, right? And the same goes for implants, right? You take out your tooth, you're 25 years old, implants are great, but maybe it lasts 40 years which is a huge feat for, for anything in your mouth, right? And now we're seeing, you know, the long-term studies on implants coming out, and they're not as long-term successful as we all initially thought, right? The failure rate is, is much higher than expected. And so I've got a 25-year-old patient taking their tooth out, thinking, like, I can get an implant. It's good for the rest of my life. Well, let's say if you're lucky, 30 years down the line, you're 50, and your implant failed. Now what? Right. And so we want to maintain our natural teeth for as long as we can, because, yes, there's always another option. There's an implant option down the line. Right. But you don't want to go to the last option right away. Um, and so I think it's important to bring that perspective in um, when you're talking to your patients and you're explaining what the options and the lifespan of the dentition is. Um, and then to, to Dr. Brown's other point, I think the other big misconception and to, to his point, I don't hear it too much in terms of patients complaining, but that, that root canal therapy or endodontic treatment is safe. Um, you know, the focal infection theory has been debunked um, time and time again. And, um, you know, endodontic treatment is contained within the natural tooth, right? 
um, and endodontic infection can be controlled. And furthermore, um, when treated appropriately, if they may, if they persist, they're isolated infections. And so I think, you know, understanding that they're safe is important. And then also understanding the alternative, right, is taking out your natural tooth and putting a, a what is essentially a foreign body in your mouth. Um, and I think when you understand those two things, um, you realize that, um, there's nothing better than your natural tooth. Those are great, great points, Dr. Burns. And it seems like our, our talk is, you know, when we have a diseased tooth that gets to this point, there are two options. You're, you're either doing endodontic therapy or you're removing the tooth and typically pushing a patient toward implant therapy. Of course, there's partials, which nobody ever wants to get into in these days, but sometimes that could be a good service to a lot of patients. Uh, of course, you can remove the tooth and put a bridge in place, but uh, now we're, we're sometimes taking virgin healthy teeth and asking them to do things and, and doing work that the other missing tooth now has to do. So we're adding a lot more stresses, stressors on teeth that, are, are, that were virgin teeth before. So that's tough as well. So it looks like the implant is the way to go and we're pushing people. And if I lost a tooth, that's probably the option that I would take. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to know that they are not the panacea that everybody believes them to be. Uh, I get just the opposite oftentimes in my office that people go through the implant process and they'll come back and they'll say, Doc, I'll do whatever you have me to do because I do not want to go through that process again. Uh, quite often, I'm, I'm hearing patients saying that the implant was placed multiple times and it failed. And then we had to go back and do a bone graph. And, then it failed again. And, you know, the, I hear restorative dentists say I was torquing it down and the whole implant came out. So it's not the slam dunk that everybody seems to think that it is sometimes. I think it's a lot more that goes into it. And it's probably the same with us. You know, you, you got to diagnose correctly. You, there's a lot of things that have to go right. Uh, endodontics is, is very different. And, and I, uh, I have this joke with all my old surgeon buddies and my, my periodontal buddies is that, uh, uh, you know, if you all treated my teeth after root canals the way that you treat your implants, things would be a lot different. And, and I'll get that oftentimes is that, you know, we see a lot of implants that are placed, the teeth around them are in emperor occlusion because, hey, we don't want that implant to touch and we don't want the implant to fail. Now, and all of a sudden, the adjacent teeth develop uh, uh, pulpal issues and we'll do endodontic therapy on them, but then they'll tell us, you know, well, don't adjust the occlusion because we don't want that implant to fail. So they're putting more stressors, more problems on the teeth that we're treating endodontically. But, you know, the, the implant, which is the titanium stud, you know, we want to keep it light in occlusion, you know? So my joke with my, my oral surgeons all the time, I say, y'all are the best cosmetic dentists around because all of your teeth aren't in occlusion. They're for looks, you know, they're just kind of there. They're not in function. So oftentimes we're doing endodontics on these teeth because they are in heavy function. We're doing endodontics because they're already compromised. They're broken down. So we're asking a lot when it comes to, to teeth that are, are endodontically retained to, to make things work. Uh, I don't think that I'm the man that saves your teeth. Everybody always wants to put that on me. No, this is a group effort. No, Dr. Brown didn't save my tooth. You've got your part as the patient to do. Your general dentist has the part on, uh, to do. You've got to keep your mouth clean and healthy. We can't have recurrent caries. 
that crown's got to be well fit. It cannot have open margins to where we have marginal leakage and everything comes back to all oh, the root canal fail. Well, there's a lot of moving parts in this. And when everybody does their part, everything works out great. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's you got to surround yourself with the right people. The other specialists you work with have to know, you know, my orthodontic friends, they know the cases that George is going to want to see this. My oral surgeons are some of my greatest referrers because they're, they're good enough that they'll say, hey, you don't need to have this tooth taken out. We've got a friend that can go a different route with this. So it's important as an endodontic specialist that you reach out to other specialists and let them know, hey, this is what I can do. This is what I can bring to the table. And I think that's all we ask as endodontists is that we're part of the discussion. Uh, oftentimes there's teeth that we know, like Dr. Burns was talking about, that we were totally out of the loop that could have been saved. And that's some of the nightmares that we hate to see is that people kind of bypass us, go straight to implants, and sometimes that doesn't work out. And and now you're kind of at your wit's end says, what options did I do have available? Oftentimes I do have patients that come in with partials because, hey, you know, I, I, the, the root canal didn't work, the implant didn't work. Uh, now this is a, a terminal tooth. Now I have no other options except for doing removable prosthodontics. Uh, a removal prosthesis in this area. So uh, yeah, we just want to be a part of the discussion, let you know what we can and can't do. And it works well when we're honest about that. Like I said, that's an important part of my background. I didn't talk about that. Right after school, I worked in oral diagnosis part-time. So I was doing private practice, but I was still teaching at the school part-time in the Department of Oral Diagnosis. So that's something, again, that was probably unimportant to me, but important to me at the time as an endodontist to know, hey, you're missing a lot of other teeth. I'm about to do a root canal here. It's important for you to do some other things in some other areas so that what we're doing here will be successful. So I don't have tunnel vision in just treating the tooth that I'm treating. I'm always mentioning other things that I see to the patient so that in the end, everybody wins. And those are excellent points, um, especially when it comes to a lot of uh, misconceptions that are out there, um, whether it's on social media or any type of documentary or um, just think just hearsay from our friends and family. So I do appreciate you both for uh, debunking some of those myths. Um, so even bringing that back to reality with the pandemic that we have going on, um, how did COVID-19 impact you? Um, just in general, uh, whether it's your practice, um, your patient pool, um, your career, uh, all of that. Um, so I'm in New York City, so COVID has had quite the impact here. Um, I'll say from the dental school perspective, um, NYU closed in March. Um, we went home for spring break and um, we did not return to the school um, until July. In July, I returned with um, the endodontic residents to start providing, you know, some emergency treatment to patients who had just been, you know, without care, frankly, or visiting emergency rooms um, since March. And so that was tough um, to see the disruption uh, to education for for my residents, right, second year residents that left for spring break and didn't get to finish the last few months of their program, um, you know, first year residents that missed a whole chunk of their of their educational experience. And so, you know, now I think as of August, 
most all the students are back in shifts with a lot more PPE and social distancing. Um, and so we're happy to be back treating patients. And obviously all dental schools have undergone um, changes to their routines. Um, in terms of private practice, I think sometimes it's forgotten that in addition to oral surgeons, endodontists are emergency care providers. Um, and so in private practice, I never stopped going to private practice. Um, and our referring dentists really relied on us um, as a place that was open for their patients. And so, you know, during the time of COVID, it wasn't our traditional, okay, patients referred for tooth number 14. I know it's pretty straightforward what I'm going to be doing here. It was a lot of patients just coming in pain. And as it ended on as having to triage the situation, um, something I don't typically always have to do, um, and doing more restorative or even extraction work just to help people in need um, beyond the scope of what typically anodontists are thought to do. Um, so, so that um, that was interesting because you know early with COVID we didn't know what type of PPE was appropriate or access to N95 masks. Um, I will say that like I maybe I just became a little bit desensitized. Like you know you have to go, you have to show up, and so. You know, I was just there. Eventually, we got N95s. We started covering our hair, gowns, all of that. Um, so, so it was it was a very interesting experience, I think, for the endodontic community um, and dental education separately. And my wearing my other hat, and then um, from just being in New York, I will say that um, New York was a ghost town for a little while, but not anymore. We are back. Um, you can tell very much that the city is alive, and so I'm, I'm proud to see that. Um, I took the time where traffic really decreased to start riding city bikes and get comfortable biking around the city. And so that now that traffic's back, I'm like, okay, I can still do this. I learned um, when there's a little bit less danger. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to see New York doing well and, and coming back to life. Yeah, same thing here, Dr. Burns, that you were saying that I never closed during the pandemic. Uh, just because the pandemic was going on, patients still were swollen, patients still were in pain, and we did not have the luxury of going home and closing our offices. So there was never a time that we were closed. We cut back on the amount of days just because there wasn't a demand, but there still was demand. So, you know, we were still going in two to three days a week during, during the crisis. And the only offices really that were opening during the time was me and two of the oral surgery, oral surgeon offices. So uh, uh, we were sharing patients. There would be patients coming in swollen, and and we would, you know, sometimes I'd send it to the surgeon, and and vice versa. Sometimes the surgeon would see a patient, and say, "Hey, you need a root canal. Let, let's send you over here to get that done." So uh, that was tough because we were learning on the fly. So I had to become a student of COVID-19 very quickly because I had my staff that I needed to take care of and, and make sure that they were well protected. I had my family at home that was worried, you know, what, what is he doing and is he doing all the right things to keep us safe? So, you know, there was a lot of reading, there was a lot of catching up on literature and listening to all the talk that was out there. Uh, N95s, I was born from next door neighbors who were painters. I was, it was, it was a different time, you know, and trying to do all the things that were right. And it seems like daily something new was changing. So you felt an obligation to do what we were doing. And I, I felt I was doing the right thing, but uh, it, it was learning on the fly. So you, you really had to 
had to uh, had to keep your ear to the ground, and everybody seemed to come together and help one another so that we could uh, keep patients happy and healthy. Okay. Um, economically, yes, things have slowed down, but the the unusual thing is that there seemed to be I don't know if Dr. Burns saw the same thing in her practice when things kind of opened back up, there seemed to be a lot of pent up demand. So a lot of people were waiting and was happy that when we were opening up full time because they had some issues and, and our referring dentists were, diff, were, were, were getting back up to speed that we had a lot of folks so, that were coming in for, to make up for lost time. So uh, uh, we, we did somewhat see what, 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 what the president was talking about at the time with that V-shape recovery, that, that it seemed like everything dropped, but as soon as, as people became more educated and understood, then all of a sudden we were, we were very close to getting back to the levels that we were before the pandemic. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I feel good about our profession because universal precautions have always been in place. So we were always, as dentists, gloved up. We were always had our gowns or whatnot on. Maybe we, we had to add some extra things that we were covering uh, we had something on our head for coverage and we had, you know, maybe one or two masks on an N95 and another mask on top of it. You know, we were doing things different, but it wasn't something that was foreign to the things that we were already doing. You know, we were always wiping down operatories. We was always spraying things. We always had barriers in place. So, uh, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm very proud of our profession. I, I don't know that we can say now that there's ever been a case. I just was on a conference call with the dean. Of a, of a dental school and they were talking about that, that not in the United States or Europe have they seen a case where uh, someone has been infected through a dental office. So uh, I think we've been trained and, and prepared for this and, and we do things the right way all along. So this was some minor, minor things that we had to change, but pretty much business as usual, okay? That the things that we were known to do and we were well trained to do. So we were well prepared for this. Absolutely, that's right. And Dr. Burns, I'm also from New York, so um, I was literally home for spring break and then everything was shutting down and I had to get back to Nashville. Um, but then, you know, we haven't been in class. We weren't in class from March until June 15th, that date. So it was just a ghost town and we were just an online Zoom school and it was just crazy times. And it's exactly what Dr. Brown was saying, where we always use universal precautions with dentistry. So that's the plus side. We're already um, equipped to be prepared for situations like these. So I know um, people may be a little nervous um, going into an endodontic specialty after dental school or even now with the climate of everything going on in the world. So what advice would you give an aspiring endodontist, especially during these crazy times that we're living through? Um, well, I mean, I would continue to promote endodontics as an excellent specialty, um, an excellent aspect of dentistry. Um, for those aspiring to become an Adonis, I would just do your due diligence. I would maintain um, interest. Um, first and foremost, I'd let them know that anodontics is becoming increasingly popular. Um, we are seeing every year more and more applications, and it is becoming more and more competitive every year. And I think more and more people are just becoming in tune with how great of a specialty it is and all of the things that it has to offer in terms of um, you know, patient care and lifestyle. And I would say that I encourage 
um, aspiring anadonists to become student members or professional members of the American Association of Anadonists, um, the AAE. When I'm reviewing applications for um, prospective residents, that's one of the things I'm looking for. Are you an AAE member? You say you're interested in this becoming your career or this becoming your specialty. You know, are you associated with us? Have you been to an annual meeting? Are you utilizing all of the tools that we already have built out through our website online? Um, and so I think that that's really important to become an AAE member even before um, you, you enter the specialty. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, I just couldn't imagine doing anything else in the industry beside anodontics. It, it suits me, it, it, you know, my personality, it, it just, everything, just like I said, everything I think I've done in the past was a building block to get me to this profession. So I love what I do. I think it's the greatest part of the industry being an endodontist. It, it's, I'm, I'm a great champion for it. So uh, I encourage anyone, if that's something you're interested in, to go for it. I've, I've heard in the past that once in the, once implants really started to take off that, oh, endodontics is a dying field. You know, you're going to become a dinosaur. Nobody's going to want to do this. And uh, we've lived through that. And now we're kind of seeing things come full circle that now, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot more people saying, hey, we don't want to go straight to implants. We're, we're some teeth that are even a little sketchy that we're concerned about. They're still pushing to try to hold on and retain these teeth as long as we can and seeing implant therapy as a last resort for some of these times. So uh, please don't think that that because of the rise in, in implant dentistry that, that endodontics is now the dinosaur of dying art. I, I see just the opposite of that. that I see that it's, it's becoming more and more, uh, uh, the, the demand for it is, is, is on the rise. Uh, I like the way I got into the profession. I, I love that uh, I use my general, my skills as a general dentist all the time, every day, it seems like. So uh, I, I think that's important. I, I love that. And I would, I would hope that you have or bring that as a strong background into your endodontic program, that you have a good understanding of, 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 of the mouth and, 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 and being able to diagnose very well and, and, and being proficient, you know. It's kind of tough, you know, when you're starting your residency and you can't get someone numb. Well, that that's a hard one to overcome right off the bat. So I think there's a lot of things that you ought to be very competent and skilled at by the time you get to that point and want to become a specialist. Uh, like I said in my program, everybody had at least 10 years of, of, of practice in general dentistry before they, they got into that. I'm not saying that's necessary or that's the route to go, but... I think any way that you get there, as long as you get there, that's the important part. Uh, I know that the grades Dr. Burns has talked about is important. I know that the test scores are, are a big deal and, and what you have on your resume, but something I've always told my boys, and, and it's a quote that I got out of a book called No Excuses, and uh, it reads, it's not the material things you accomplish that matter so much as it is the quality of the person you must become to accomplish well above the average. So it's not all these little things, it's more about who you become. And that's something I've really drilled into my sons is that character is what really seems to be an outstanding trait. So I think if you wanna be a great endodontist, it's the quality of person you've gotta to become to get there. So things like being disciplined, things like being respectful, being punctual, 
uh, being hygienic and the way that you carry yourself, being neat, being organized, those things are the things that seem to be the most important. Uh, I know endodontics carries this, this theme that, hey, it's a good lifestyle, you can make a lot of dollars, but I've never, I've never seen that work out well. Chasing dollars has never been a good idea. Uh, I think instead of chasing dollars, when you spend most of your energy in trying to become a better person, dollars seem to come. They seem to appear. When you spend all your time making dollars, that seems to be all you get is just dollars. But I look for a career that was going to give me peace. I, I wanted to have joy. I, I wanted to have comfort. I didn't go into endodontics so I could be wealthy and rich. And, uh, you know, like I said, again, it's not about chasing the dollars. But I found the more I became better at understanding my patients, communicating better to my patients, when I became more disciplined in the things I, I was doing, when I became more respectful, that it seemed like dollars would automatically come with that. So when that's your priority, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I think if, if you're doing it to help people, if I think you're doing it to become a better person, when you're doing things for the right reason, money comes. But that's important, you know, and I, I'm sure that, that in academics, they can read the type of people and their motives, knowing why they want to do what they do. Uh, some things you can't fake. They come through. So uh, in, important to, to have your, your motives right and, and your lifestyle right and doing things for the right reason. And I think when your heart and your motives are right, that everything else is kind of fall into place. I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, if you are a person who's trying to hide something, um, endodontics is not, is not the specialty for you. I mean, this is not a profession where you can hide things. We live and die by our radiograph. We document all of our work and there is nothing to hide there. Um, and so get in the practice of being honest, of being upfront. Um, and like Dr. Brown said, being reliable um, because that's what makes it good in the dominance. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for that advice. Um, even though uh, us as dental students, um, if you're interested in endodontics, definitely apply uh, the tips that were just given. Um, even for us that may not be um, interested in endodontics, those are some excellent, excellent uh, tips and advice that we can take with us for sure. Um, are there any closing remarks or anything, uh, Dr. Brown, Dr. Burns? Uh, Taylor, Jasmine, I would just like to thank you guys for inviting me. Um, it's been a pleasure. I think this is a great, a great podcast, and um, I'm happy to to be a resource and share anything I know with you guys. Thank you. Yes, I'm so proud of you all and, and the things that you're doing. I think it's incredible. Taylor, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell this, but Taylor is, is my neighbor. So I've known her from way back when she was in middle school and high school and she spent time in my office. So she's always shown a desire and I always jumped in and looked over my shoulder and, and has always been interested. So it, 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 when you have the right mindset and the right motives, it's understandable to see you today doing these types of things. Uh, so that's the types of things I think Dr. Burns that they're looking for in these programs today that you see that you have that in your background. So uh, that's important that 
if it's if you're passionate about it, and I have to tell you, I am passionate about endodontics. Uh, that that's that's uh, I love it, you know, and I, I love what I do. And uh, when you're passionate about something, I think your passion shows through. Okay. Uh, closing remarks, I guess if I had to say something, I, I think in, in looking back on things that you, you really must enjoy the journey. I think uh, one of the things that we get caught up in is the destination. Uh, I'm looking to get here and I'm looking to get here tomorrow. And uh, you want it to happen as soon as possible. But I, I just don't think that we really stop and enjoy all the little things that seem to happen to us along the way that are really pouring good things into us. Sometimes some of our failures, we, 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 we kind of think those as bad things, but a lot of good things happen from our failures. I think the important thing is it is a journey. So you must keep moving. You must keep going. You can't get to a mountaintop and just stay there and celebrate. You know, you got to keep moving, come down from the mountaintop and keep on going. At the same time, when you're in a valley and, and things aren't working the right way, if you keep moving, eventually you can come out of that. So it's all about the journey. And then when we kind of get close to the end, we'll, we'll realize that it really wasn't so much about the destination. It was all the things that happened along the journey that make us who we are. So enjoy the ride, enjoy all the ups and downs. And I know if you're passionate and, and you keep up your goals and your desires there that eventually you'll, you'll be where you wanna be. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Um, and again, uh, we appreciate you being on the show. So let's go ahead and give it up for our special Yay! guest. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, the knowledge and advice that you have shared with us um, today. Um, let's go ahead and wrap things up and transition into Taylor's takeaways. And today I want to discuss tips on how to eat healthier, even while on a tight budget. Um, so be sure to plan out your meals. Uh, this will help buying foods at restaurants too often. Um, even sticking to your grocery list. Don't go to the store uh, hungry, um, for one, uh, but also um, shop the perimeter of the store first before going up and down the aisles. Um, buying whole foods, not whole foods the store, but more like vegetables, beans, um, fruits, whole grains, um, even if they're frozen, uh, that's always a better option than their processed counterparts. So um, I know it's tempting to continue ordering fast food. You know, I'm saying this to myself even. <laughs> um, but try using this time to make that recipe you've always wanted or replicating a meal that you've seen on Instagram uh, to try and switch it up and to have a, a healthier lifestyle. And that's all I have for Taylor's takeaways. See, Taylor, I needed this advice yesterday because, you know, I, during the weekends, I like to splurge a little bit and get, you know, some sort of healthy fast food-ish, right? And I got it yesterday and I just wasn't satisfied. So, you know, that was on me. The joke was on me. I should have just, you know, made the food in the fridge, right? What did mom always say? Go get the food from the fridge. We, we got food at home, right? Right. We have food <laughs> at home. <laughs> That's what we have to tell ourselves. <laughs> Exactly. And um, I just wanted to end on a little high note. You know, the election is over. Thank God. Um, we can breathe a little bit. Um, now, I know the election didn't go the way that some people wanted, but the other half are extremely happy, like myself. Um, <laughs> so we have a lot of work to do as a country. Um, I just think that 
uh, lots of prayers and uh, just thinking about the future. I am so happy for the future of this country. I'm just elated that this is all happening right now. Like I said, there's a lot of work to do, but we are finally going to be moving in the right direction. And thank God. <laughs> if you like what you hear, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Pod for more updates on the show and be sure to give us a shout out. Want to ask us questions or give suggestions on topics that you'd like to hear? Then email us at theocclusaltablepodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear feedback from our listeners, so don't forget to leave a thumbs up, five stars, and a review on whichever platform you're listening on. Well, that's all we have for today. So until next time, this is The The Occlusal Table. Table!